We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him, continuing with uh, what is Islam by Shahab Ahmad. We are still in this section about the Sufis who are not within uh, the normal path of Sharia. And so he calls it the Mazhabi Ishq. So, so the path of, of passion. So we begin with now it might be argued. All right, who's reading? Is it 46? Yeah. Um, Someone will read. I'll, I'll read it. It's something on yeah. the page of the video. Uh, 46 now it might be argued? Yeah. All right. Now it might be argued that literary works of fiction and imagination are an expression of, not of Islam, but of culture, at best of Islamic culture, and thus unlike works of law or theology or Quranic exegesis, are not to be taken as constitutive elements in conceptualizing Islam. This assumed distinction between Islam, understood reflexively as being something other than, and somehow more, both more or less than, culture, usually as religion on the one hand and between culture on the other hand is something to which I shall return to at greater length later in this book. For the moment, though, it should be borne in mind that even if we somehow designate something as belonging to Islamic culture rather than to Islam, we must still determine what the qualifier Islamic means in the term Islamic culture and how that attribute Islamic relates to Islam. Okay. So this is a point we often make, right? That that's religion, that's not culture. That's culture, that's not religion. And one point to think about that I think we might have already made is that's a modern uh, uh, dichotomy, that this is culture, not religion. Uh, for most of our history, you couldn't separate the two. And you would see this, for example, on days like Eid, that, you know, uh, on Eid in the different cultures, a very particular dish would be made, Right. And, and so for the people, that was part of their Islam, right? You know, in the subcontinent, they'd make this food. In the Arab world, they'd make that food. I'm sure Afghans would make a particular food. And, and so even though today we technically say that's culture, not religion, but that was almost as much Islam for the people um, as things like their prayer. Their clothing was almost as much Islam for them as things like their prayer. Meaning they're not going to say it is as mandatory um, as prayer, but they will say this is what you do. This is what you do on this day. And, and so when you make it religion versus culture, then it comes into the question, this is what you're supposed to do. Okay? And so rituals that we would do relate to birth, relate to death, uh, relate to marriage. Um, each, each culture has its outlook and its practices, and that's just how you do it. If you don't do it, you feel like you're doing something wrong. And so the question, of course, is what is Islamic culture? Right? Um, and that even raises the, the simpler question, which is the point of this book, what is Islam? Is Islam the material that you have on a bookshelf, the Quran and the Hadith? Right? Uh, or is Islam the religious practice using this category religion? Um, and he's pointing out all these things that are religious practices, but seem to contradict what are other religious practices. Like in the last section, we had a lot of discussion about drinking. That oh, you had these Sufis that would write poetry about drinking that was at least metaphorical, but in many cases they were actually drinking. Right? You look like you're about to say something. No. no? Okay. Okay, continue. 
This resorts to a distinction between the somehow self-evidently distinct categories of religion and culture is often invoked in addressing the fifth question, whether there is such a thing as Islamic art. And if there is, then what is actually Islamic about it? As one art historian has put it, the problem of where to locate Islamic art is particularly fraught with the qualifying adjective caught between a religious identity and a cultural identification. Thus, the father of, modern, of the modern study of Islamic art, Oleg Grabar, noted in his entry on Islamic art in the leading dictionary of art, these arts are almost exclusively secular arts, with the corollary paradox that most of the arts, with the exception of architecture, from a culture defined by its religious identity, have been devoted to the beautification of life rather than to the celebration of the divine. So this is, this is a very interesting point. When we look at it from the perspective of Sharia, think of it as levels of obligation. So the first level would be, um, you know, daruriyat. These are things that you have to have. So you have to have food, right? You have to have education, okay? You have to have governance, and then a level above that or, um, is what we call hajiyat. And the idea there is that, okay, uh, how, do you get, how do you fulfill those obligations? So to food, you're going to need farms, you're going to need uh, livestock, you're going to need grocery stores. Okay? And then you have zayinat or, or dahsiniyat, which is how do you beautify it? Okay? So first level you need food second level how do you get food that'll be grocery stores and and trade and raising you know the plants or the animals and then how do you make it beautiful okay so this is part of the sharia itself and so he's making the point this guy Oleg Garber he's making he just actually died i think like 6 months ago um, he's making the point that if you actually look at islamic art most of it is focused on beautification beautification of life as opposed to celebrating the divine and so think about, like, you know, every once in a while on Facebook, someone's going to start posting these articles about, um, uh, like, the geometric patterns in, in Islamic art. What's so, what's so, you know, how is that praising the divine, right? But it is beautifying life. And so it may be that Islamic art is just that which is constantly done, uh, consciously done to beautify the experience of life, you know? as opposed to Quranic calligraphy. Okay. So Quranic calligraphy <coughs> is itself beautifying life, um, but so is uh, geometry. See what I'm saying? That uh, this, uh, this way of defining Islamic art is, is very fascinating. Uh, as opposed to, if you think of most of our mosques that are built in Chicago, uh, they're built very consciously with certain particular forms, like a dome, maybe a minaret, but definitely a dome. And often the architecture, if it's not a built, if it's a building that's being built as a mosque, the architecture usually doesn't match anything in the environment, right? So Olin Park Prayer Center, um, you know, everyone looks at that and says, "Oh, this is beautiful," but it doesn't match the architecture of anything around. So you could physically make that mosque anywhere. Uh, but one of the theories of art is you want to make something organic. So if you make a mosque, you want the mosque to look like the, the, um, the environment. Um, have you guys ever seen the, uh, the mosque in Abiquiu, New Mexico? Mm -hmm. uh, make a note to take a look at it. Uh, it it's, looks like a Pueblo. Okay. It's, uh, and it's designed, uh, I think he's also passed away, it was designed by a very prominent um, uh, Islamic architect who, what did he, he's Egyptian, 
but when he was commissioned to, to make this mosque, he went and studied the architecture of the whole area, including the architecture of the religious sites, and then based on that, um, he designed this mosque. And then you really feel like you're in a building that's very, very indigenous, right? as opposed to something that's foreign. Okay, let's continue. Two of the leading historians of Islamic art have written. What exactly is Islamic art? How well does this category serve the understanding of the material? Does a religiously based classification serve us better than geographic or linguistic ones? While some Islamic art may have been made by Muslims for purposes of faith, much of it was of not. A mosque or a copy of the Quran clearly fits everybody's definition of Islamic art. But what about a 12th century Syrian bronze canteen inlaid with Arabic inscriptions and Christian scenes? Most scholars accept that the convenient, if incorrect, term Islamic refers not just to the religion of Islam, but to the larger culture in which Islam was the dominant, but not sole religion practice. Islamic art, therefore, is not comparable to such concepts as Christian or Buddhist art, which are normally understood to refer specifically to religious art. <clears throat> in some, then, the term Islamic art seems to be a convenient misnomer for the visual culture of a place and time when the people, or at least their leaders, espoused a particular religion. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so when we think of Christian art, it's going to be something that's very religious, right? Like a church or a painting, you know, or, or an icon. And Buddhist art, when we think of that, it'll be the same idea. It'll be a temple, it'll be a statue of the Buddha, or something like that. Yet, when we speak of Islamic art, it's much wider. So, would you call that Islamic art? I knew we were going to go back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, tell yeah, me. I was waiting for the moment. Okay. Uh, would you call that Islamic art? Yeah. Okay, the La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. Yeah. Would you call that Islamic art? Yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's interesting because that's Christian. What is it? I didn't say Holy it Land. Yeah. I knew that too. It's, I was it's, waiting for the trap. It's, uh, you're waiting for the trap. That's <laughs> why I was just quiet the whole time. I was like, okay, okay. Yeah. Meaning, uh, a Muslim gave that to me. Palestinian Muslim gave that to me. You know, these tiles of Jerusalem. But if you actually look closer to it, it's, it's like Christian sites. It's, uh, oh, wow. I mean, I don't even think you have the Dome of the Rock there. I mean, try to think of how many times you've ever seen, you know, a photo of Jerusalem and you didn't see the Dome of the Rock. And, yeah. Would you say that's also because in our faith there's a very, like, strong tradition of being against, like, iconoclasm and, and depicting religious figures in a certain way? And... I mean, I think, uh, I think there probably is something to that, because if we look at Eastern Orthodox art, yeah. um, then you find a lot of similarities. So the Eastern Orthodox uh, populations, inspired by us, went through their own period of, of iconoclasm, yeah. right? I mean, so if you go to, like, the Hagia Sophia, you will see still these mosaics of, of Isa, alayhi salam, but by and large, most of... Uh, Some of them, actually, like, uh, I don't know if it was at the Hagia Sophia, but those other places, like, where they did actually chisel out the face. Yeah, okay, yeah, right, yeah. Islam, be, during that period. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So you see that. And so, so I would suggest that if we looked at Eastern Orthodox art, we would probably find some similarities. Um, I think also, one thing that's different is that in Christianity, the story of Jesus, alayhi salam, is central. Okay? And so, it makes sense that in this culture you have a very strong focus on just stories themselves. I mean, every culture has, has uh, emphasis on stories, but the whole industry of storytelling. And then on top of that, um, 
Um, I think that's part of the reason why you even have icons, because the icons are not usually just Jesus standing there. Yeah. What are the icons like? It would be you have a crucifix, yeah. which is part of the story of Jesus. I don't think we have as much of that in our tradition. Yeah. Uh, the the one I, th- I I can think of most commonly throughout the history of of Muslim populations are depictions of the night journey. Yeah. Right. And even um, um, like a Aqsa, right? That's directly connected to the night journey. But otherwise, by and large, I don't think the the story of the Prophet peace be upon him is as central. And thus, our tradition, in a way, becomes kind of abstract. Yeah. Right. Uh, even, I mean, even if you look at those depictions of the night journey, or like the Prophet's face is always blanked out. Yeah, yeah, it's right? always blanked out. Yeah. But the point I'm making is that at least it's a story. It's an yeah. event. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, when you go on the pilgrimage, I don't know how much you actually connect those moments with events from the Prophet's life, peace be upon him, as opposed to Ibrahim al Islam's life. Right. Um, but, you know, because uh, so much of our, our, uh, our approach to Islam is conceptual, meaning these are things you do, these are things you're supposed to do, I think that also gives into a wider type of, of, of a wider variety of art. Would you say that's also why cultures within sort of the Islamic domains have been so unique within themselves as far as, like, what they produce, like, culturally? You know, while, while staying within Islam, where as opposed to... Maybe certain Christian ones tend to be more uniform, or is that wrong? Well, I mean, I could be too simplistic here, but looking at the, the history of Christian imperialism versus Muslim imperialism, and the history of Christian imperialism, it seems like a big part of it was the conversion of the masses, mm-hmm. right? And to the point that um, that you're not just converting the masses, you're converting the houses of worship. Um, in Islam, it seems like much of the period of time, um, the focus was... Uh, you know, conversion of the rulers, not so much the masses. And then when conversion is taking place among the masses, then you start converting the temples and the churches to, to, to mosques and such. Um, and so I'm suggesting that uh, uh, just because of that, you know, you're going to have a preservation of a lot of the indigenous cultures, mm. you know. Um, and again, I, I totally acknowledge that I'm being simplistic because even in the history of our empires, you have periods of aggressive conversion and such. But by and large, it seems as though they didn't mess around with the populations as much. Mm. You know? An example of that is, is, the, uh, is the legacy of Buddhism in Afghanistan. Right? So Afghanistan, before Islam comes along, was a majority Buddhist population. Mm. And the famous example is the Buddhist statues that the, that the Taliban mm. um, uh, destroyed. But um, the fact that they'd been there for, for a couple thousand years, even under Muslim rule, you know, is is a hint that all right, even you're keeping those things. You know. Okay. But the difficulties with the convenient misnomer of Islamic art are not are not limited to the relationship between religion and culture, but also with the relationship between unity and diversity. One of the most harmful ideas developed by historians of Islamic art is the myth of the unity of Islamic art. This idea of unity creates a paradigm for understanding Islamic art that primarily serves to explain similarities between different artistic products. It therefore provides an easy solution for quite intriguing and remarkably specific cases of parallelism in the history of the art of Islam. The projected meta-similitude in Islamic art seems to put together different objects, thus creating what is often termed unity and diversity. This stance means that similitude 
can be explained away very simply on the basis of unity, and other potential reasons for visual similarities are sometimes ignored. Should we not rewrite and critically rethink the, and discuss the history of unity in Islamic art? Okay, so what are they saying in this quote? What's, what seems to be the point here? It's, it seems to me like they, they're maybe similar to like Christian and Buddhist art, as you mentioned before. Like in order to sort of categorize it as one large whole, they use this sort of idea of unity and that sort of seems to scrub away like, you know, finer specific details yeah. that might be very important to the nature of the art itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so in looking for what is Islamic art, they're looking for what is common among all this. And, and, you know, as you said, then the end result is that it excludes other things that may have been very important. Meaning, suppose you have uh, a dish that has ayahs on it, okay, in one culture. And suppose you have um, a door that has ayahs on it, okay. Then the goal is going to say, okay, both of them are praising God, one through the dish and one through the door. Mm -hmm. But that might not have anything to do with why the ayahs are on the, the dish or the door, uh -huh. right? And so this is always the issue anytime you're interpreting past cultures is, is uh, are you interpreting things the same way that those cultures interpreted them? And, and so he's saying that we, we're trying to force all these things to have the same meaning across different cultures when they may not. I mean, an, an example is, is hijab. Um, that uh, is hijab um, a marker of identity? Is it an act of obedience? Is it an act of defiance? Depends on the person, right? And, and then the art of it um, also plays into that too. I had a student who would often wear a hijab that had skulls on it. Right. And that just reflected her personality. Yeah. That the scholarly field that studies this art and that represents it to the global public is uncertain of how to pin down the relation of this art to Islam is nicely illustrated in the fact that while the custodian of the most important single collection of the art produced in societies of Muslims, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City has an institutional department of Islamic art. The museum has publicly designated its acclaimed new galleries of the art of the Arab lands, Turkey, Iran, Central Asia, and later South Asia, with an elaborate ethnic, geographical, and temporal circumlocution that omits any mention of the words Islam or Islamic. What would be um, the purpose of doing that? So it could be just willful secularization. What else? Think, for example, the art of Muslims in the subcontinent. Uh, there may be a lot of similarities with the art of Hindus of the subcontinent. Okay. Not necessarily the religious things that we would identify as religious, <coughs> but other, other techniques of art might be the same across different religious communities. Like the aesthetics, yeah. you know, in terms of like, you know, some simply like when you go... Like for, like I've been to that exhibit, and you look at the mole stuff, and you're like, a lot of this is very similar to like you know, there's Muslim miniatures, and then you see Hindu miniatures, mm -hmm. and it's like the same thing, but you're just expressing different, I guess. Yeah. Culture. Yeah. And so, so these are all different categories that you can use. One can be Islamic, or one can be according to geography, and that's basically you know your choice and how you want to do it. Okay. Let's continue. The question of what constitutes Islamic art is an especially vexing one. 
in the case of art objects such as wine cups, made for a widespread social practice that is in direct violation <laughs> of the overwhelming prohibitions of Quran-based Islamic law, or a figural painting produced in evident indifference to the sound hadith of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, recorded in the canonical collections of Al-Bukhari, 810-870, and Muslim, 821-875, versions of which appear across the major hadith collections, which are regarded as possessing normative prescriptive authority next to only that of the Quran, and which state categorically and ominously, the most grievously tormented people amongst the denizens of hell on the day of resurrection will be the makers of images, al-Muwassirun. Musawirun. I'm sorry, al-Musawirun. Yeah. He who makes an image, sawara suratan, will yeah. be punished by God on the day of resurrection until he breathes life into it, which he will not be able to do. Mm-hmm. Kind of scary. And so here's the point, that yet we have religious-ish art in our history that is depictions. We even have statues in our history. And so how do we make sense of all that? Dun-dun-dun. The latter prophetic imprecation alludes to the text of the Quran itself that indicates that God is given, by my blessing, by the Holy Spirit, to the prophet Isa, among mortals, the power to pass the impossible test that will be imposed upon the image makers come doomsday. O Isa, son of Maryam, when you fashion from clay the form of a bird by my leave and you blow into it, it becomes by my leave a bird. No artist other than Jesus, it would appear, has a wing or a prayer. That's a <laughs> so, good line. So, Isa has, has has been given this, but no one else has. <laughs> Are then these art objects Islamic despite their evident irreligiosity? Can we speak of an Islamic wine cup or of an Islamic portraiture? Or are they secular objects, in which case they are non-slash-un-Islamic? Can and should we somehow speak non-oxymoronically of secular Islamic art, as so many art historians do? And if so, by what criteria do we make the distinction? So still, it's raising the same question, um, using these extreme examples that, all right, if you have something that is used for a haram purpose, yet uh, it might have something that we would identify with Islam as part of it, how do we even categorize that? This is not a a good comparison at all, but I'm just thinking of, like, if you have an Islamic studies degree on, like, interest-based loans, Mm -hmm. there's all these, like, mixtures of, like, we're like, oh my goodness, that hadith is so clear, how could they do that? Mm -hmm. But then the hadith about interest are maybe more scary, Mm -hmm. and we still engage in it every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, the spiel I always give about Islamic findings. <laughs> I was thinking when you said it, you were like, "Oh, that's perfect." What? We had a conversation before class. Something about shaitan. Setting aside wine cups for the moment, it will be helpful to look more closely at the exemplary definitional problems that are posed by the question of how to categorize figural painting in relation to or in terms of Islam. The truth function of the collections of canonical prophetic hadith is supposed to be that they establish specific indefeasible norms based on based upon the authority of prophetic pronouncements. Hadith authoritative, authoritatively identify and specify divine law. The prophetic statements on figural representation seem pretty unambiguous in the direness of their implications, leaving very little, if any, interpretive wiggle room. The word surah that is used in the hadith without any qualification is the broadest conceptual term in Arabic for image, the plain meaning of which covers animate, 
inanimate, two-dimensional, and three-dimensional figures made for whatever purpose. It is thus hardly surprising that Islamic legal discourse has throughout its history been overwhelmingly hostile towards figural representation, as is summed up by the eminent Shafi'i jurist and Hadith scholar Sharafuddin al-Nawawi, 1234-1278, whose accessible short collection of pious stick Hadith, the Riyadh Salihin, Gardens of the Righteous, is a very widely printed and read work in our present day, and who wrote in his authoritative commentary on the canonical Hadith collection of Muslim bin Hajjaj, the authorities of our school and others hold that the making of a picture of any living thing is strictly forbidden, and that is one of the great sins, because it is specifically threatened with the grievous punishment mentioned in the Hadith. The crafting of it is forbidden under every circumstance, because it imitates the creative activity of God. This is the summary position of our school on the question, and the absolute majority of the companions of the Prophet, so peace be upon him, and their immediate followers, and the succeeding generations of scholars accepted it. It is the view of Al-Thawri, Malik, Abu Hanifa, and others besides them. All right, so say goodbye to Snapchat. <laughs> this is why photos were, were like seen as a Haram thing, right? I think when they first came out. So, yeah, I mean... Uh, the way a lot of modern um, interpreters take this is they focus on three-dimensional, uh, uh, so sculptures or statues. Um, but he's arguing that the word that's being chosen is the widest possible word, including everything. And, and so, yeah, who knows? <laughs> I like how we're just casually talking about this, but, like, the punishment is so, like, uh, kudos, you, he was like, he was like, kudos, you Michael. <laughs> In any case, in invoking Malik and Abu Hanifa, the eponymous founders of the Maliki and Hanafi madhabs, the Shafi al-Nawi is basically saying that all of the legal schools hold the same view, even when legal scholars have occasionally adopted interpretive devices that delimit the application of the plain meaning of these prophetic statements in a manner so as to construe them not as requiring outright legal prohibition of figural representation by distinguishing, for example, between two- and three-dimensional images, or between images of animate and inanimate beings, or between objects and spaces intended for devotion and those for daily use, or between illustrations that depict the shadow of a body and those that do not. These positions are unable to lose the tone of partial qualifications to a larger principle of disapproval, and have hardly been received with an excess of juridical 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 conviction or enthusiasm. The above cited prohibit prohibitory ruling of al Nawi, for example, goes on firmly and deliberately to reject these very qualifications. That was one long sentence. Okay. So what are we saying? That, okay, on the one hand, um, uh, uh, who was it? Imam al-Nawi is saying all the schools agree. Okay? But there are people who differ, uh, but they tend to be the minority populations. Okay? Minority opinions. I live for the minority <laughs> Right. Okay, continue. <laughs> <laughs> A thorough analysis of the... Legal opinions towards figural representation, which examines the question in context of the prolific production of figural painting in Safa with Iran, concludes with a distressing assessment. All of the above plainly leaves Persian painters in dire straits. They are still going to be severely punished in the next world. Yeah, among, I mean, among Persian paintings, you will have plenty of paintings of the Prophet, peace be upon him, of Ali, of Imam Hussein, 
and then you'll even have uh, paintings of battles and such. These are, if you uh, do a, a search at some point of Safavid uh, painting or Safavid mustache, because they had like the, the killer mustaches, um, but the point is that's all in paintings. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. If you like do any any uh, search of miniatures, you find this. Like they're they're the most prominent ones. Mm-hmm. I think like the moguls, like they're descended from the mogul ones. Oh, explain the, the explain, other way. I'm sorry. Explain to everybody what miniatures are. Like they're like these really small uh, watercolor paintings that have pretty much a similar aesthetic, like you know, uh, thick lines, like black lines. They're almost like comics of like I guess the past. Yeah. You know, uh, they tend. One thing I think we, we talked about in the previous class, they tend not to represent things in a very sort of realistic way. Like dimensions are like completely off. Like buildings, for example, it'll be like a 3D building, but it'll be like, mm-hmm. it'll seem flat on some sides. Like, it's like weird. Or like people will be the same size. Yeah, exactly. Like proportion isn't isn't uh, really a, a big thing. But Have we talked about why uh, before? Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the people were like the center. Of, yeah. Of attention, mm-hmm. like, so to speak, as opposed to like anything else. Yeah. Nature or reality. Okay. Question. Yes. When talks about the Safavid Tidon, um, how, like, is there a difference between the Sunni and Shia population there? In Iran? Yeah, because so, you mentioned like Adi and Hussein. So I'm just thinking that there's some kind of difference of opinion there. So that's a good question. Uh, I don't know how it plays out uh, culturally and in these matters. Um, Iran was Shafi'i Sunni for almost the entirety of its history until the Safavid Empire came along. So it becomes majority Shia probably about 300 years ago, 400 years ago. It was majority Sunni until that point. Now it's probably about, I want to say, 70-30 or 60-40. How? Why did that happen? How did what happen? Um, Going from Sunni to Shia. Uh, A lot of that is conquest. There's still like a huge pocket next to the border, I think, of Pakistan, right? That's still Sunni. Still Sunni or Shia? Still Sunni. Next to oh Iran and Pakistan. Yeah, that border. Um, Maybe, like, I know I was watching like a speech where like a very traditional. Uh, he's not Deobandi. What is he? he's from Nadwa? He gave like a talk in a masjid over there. Like, and this is like I'm like wait this is Iran you know like you're kind you of, know. especially amongst normal Sunni narratives is presented as it's all Shia yeah, like you right. know mm-hmm. it's not very um, forgiving to Sunni state so to speak and. And I read up on it, like, that corner just has a ton of... Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, looking What's crazy is, like, like, how much power influences, like, people's faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but explain further. Meaning, like, all it took was a change in power or empire for people to go from, like, Shia to Sunni. Mm-hmm. Like... Yeah. yeah, I mean, this raises the question in general in terms of the human experience. It's sort of peripheral uh, to this book, but... Uh, how central is the population, how central is belief to the population of the masses? Um, and more often than not, it seems like it's as central as power makes it to be. So if power says, all right, you know, we're going to live and die for, for Christ, then that's what the populations will do. If power says, um, we're all going to convert to Islam, then there'll be a little bit of resistance, but it seems like people shift. Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating. Yeah. We would think that, you know, Dean is super central to everyone yeah. um, to the point that it's something they can never give up, but it doesn't seem like it's that simple. Yeah. Is that why we have some, or not, like, I guess, more acceptance in Islam as far as our religious history goes of, quote-unquote, religious political projects? You know, What does that mean? Like, you know, the, the, the fact that the Prophet saw some in his life, 
I mean, this he established like a political sort of enterprise, right? Like yeah. a polity or whatever that word is, where they we he had power, he had political power as opposed to like when you contrast that with Christianity, where Isa mm-hmm. Islam is seen in Christian faith as being very much against power mm-hmm. and sort of trying to counteract power mm-hmm. and and you know fight against that. But with us, we're pretty much like our sort of religious, I guess, tradition is like yeah, power isn't. Like a bad thing to have. I'd say that's more Sunni than Shia. Ah. Right? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, because in the Shia narrative, after the Prophet, yeah. peace be upon him, then it was hijacked. You know? And so you'll find much more of a sentiment in modern Shias of, of resistance to power. Ah. Right? Um, and less so among modern Sunnis. Ah. You know? Yeah, we, I mean, we're, we're pretty hardcore in, yeah, about resistance, right? There's those, like, hadith that... You know, you're not even supposed to rebel against. Yeah, these are these are a bunch of hadith that were invoked at the time of the Arab Spring. Yeah. That on the one side, you know, the greatest jihad is to give a word of truth to to a tyrannical leader. And on the flip side, you know, power is also promoting its own hadith that you know, if you're allowed to pray, then you can't uh, revolt or anything like that. It's pretty hardcore, like you know. Oh. Yeah. There's. I mean, you're not like. Unless, like, they do something very, let's take, it's very explicit, like, something super, super explicit, where they, the leader, like, doesn't let Muslims be Muslims or something like that. Yeah. You, if they, if you're not allowed to pray. Yeah, if you can't do, that's, like, that's the threshold. And until then, you're not supposed to rebel. There was that one major scholar in Syria, right, who opposed yeah. the protests. Do you know his name? So his name was uh, Ramadan Bouti, and he was uh, one of the most prominent of all the Syrian scholars. And when the Syrian uprisings were happening, um, he was speaking against them. And, and so um, he, uh, his status left, meaning people you know, turned against him. Um, it is said that eventually he changed his opinion. And then, like, the next day he was killed in a missile strike wow. on his mosque. Yeah. The rumors are that with them, like, oh, my Yeah. He was the one who said, like, um, go home, your foreheads and never touch the ground or something like that. Maybe, don't know. What did you say? This, this reminds me a lot of like what you would say in Faith Foundations about the role of the scholar being to like main, not maintain the status quo, but like their focus on that versus like, mm-hmm. like stability. the Sufi or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. stability. But then also like it sounds crazy how could like this whole population shift, mm-hmm. but when like new generations are born into a different, like my family went from Jewish to Catholic to like evangelical Christians to now Muslim in a few generations. Oh, fascinating. Like very few, and so it sounds bizarre, but no. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very it's easy for that to happen. It's kind of scary to think yeah. of like, yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Alright, let's continue. Or whatever, right? Yeah. Whatever one's personal attitude to legal opinions, it is a cognitive challenge to conceive of how these authoritative prophetic pronouncements taken at face value would not intuitively and straightforwardly translate into a larger normative attitude of anti-iconism, or at least an-iconism. Certainly the tendency to, at the least, a legal, cultural, and moral discomfort with figural images, and at the most, the outright enacted repudiation thereof has been evident in the history of societies of Muslims. This tendency was recently enacted on the world stage in the dramatic destruction of the giant Buddha statues of Bamiyan by the Afghan Taliban. My own first encounter with the same statement of what is, is not Islamic took place on a smaller scale in 1980 at an airport in Saudi Arabia. 
where I watched customs officers employ a hammer to shatter chess pieces that had emerged from the suitcase of an unfortunate Pashtun laborer. Okay, so, small point. Um, the, the dominant narrative in our society about the destruction of those statues is that they were destroyed because they were icons, but that was not the Taliban's argument. This is the side point. The Taliban's argument was that uh, they were going through a famine, and some people came from the UN, I forgot which agency it is within the UN that's related to art and heritage, saying we have funds to, to restore these statues. And, and the Taliban responded by saying, okay, uh, we have people dying here and wow. you're spending money on the statues, right? Mm -hmm. And they said, well, you can't do anything about it. And they said, okay, well, here's what we think of your statues. Like that, that was their argument, right? I don't know if that was really a very wise political move, you know, or a mature political move, but it's a very different story. Like, it has nothing to do with icons. I think this was also somewhat similar along this level. This was also kind of brought up, I think, when uh, when some of the worst stuff was happening in Syria and Iraq. Uh, you notice a lot of prominent Muslims uh, get annoyed at um, ISIS or Assad or whoever for destroying, like, religious artifacts and yeah, stuff. Yeah, like Persepolis. Yeah. yeah, and I remember there was a sort of a counter to that said by some other, I guess, scholars and stuff, they were like, well, this seems to be kind of, uh, it's it's kind of, like, bad to be doing this when those same people sometimes aren't talking about the human lives lost, you know, and, yeah. and they make a much bigger deal of, like, artifacts and stuff like this, but then if you look at the human suffering and loss, it's, like, vastly, vastly more, you yeah. know, uh, like, crazy and, and important, yeah. but, yeah. yeah. But yeah, um, I mean, it's not surprising to hear about, you know, chess pieces being uh, destroyed. I mean, that's even one of the theories about the Sphinx, right? That, uh, you know, the Sphinx's nose is broken. So there's all kinds of theories, and one theory is that it was intentionally broken uh, as part of iconoclasm. You know, perhaps by the Mamluks or Ottomans or something. So. Indeed, in view of these canonical hadith, there would have been no particular reason for us to have been surprised had this attitude to figural images been universal. If there had been no production of figural images in Islamic history, or if such production as there was had been carried out as an underground enterprise in service of an illicit pleasure, what tends to surprise and also confuse is that this was precisely not the case. The historical production of figural images took place under the financial and custodial patronage of the rulers of states and of their associated political and cultural elites as an enterprise in which considerable financial resources were invested, in which artists were held in high social esteem, and where miniature paintings were sold as luxury goods in a roaring trade across the Islamic world and were also exchanged as tokens of legitimate and legitimating value in diplomatic gift-giving. The text... So, oh. so, what is the basic point here? That this was not on the fringe. This was at the center, and it was something regarded with esteem, not with distaste. If, if there was this universal practice of iconoclasm, then, you know, then we wouldn't really have something to talk about here. But, but what is strange is that, no, this was a big part of various Muslim cultures. The text which many of these expensively produced illustrations accompanied were the self-same works of poetry, ethics, morals, and epic that make up all the Balkans to Bengal literary canon discussed above. One might add to the list the definitive narrative of self-conceptualization of the rulership, the Shahnama of Ferdosi, for which see chapter 6, an engagement with the values of whose pre-Islamic legends every ruler in the Balkans to Bengal complex constructed his mandate to enact and uphold the order on earth 
of the God of Islam. The shared value and values invested in the Shahnama is well expressed in the fact that numerous rulers commissioned the production of court copies and that lavishly illustrated copies were given as diplomatic gifts, such as the famous one given in 1568 by the Shi'i Safavid Shah Tahmas uh, to the Sunni Ottoman Sultan Salim. Okay, so, so Shahnama is uh, this, this 50,000 line poem uh, by Ferdowsi that was commissioned for, I forgot which sultan, in like Central Asia. And, or no, or maybe he was given 50,000 pieces of gold. What, what, there's 50,000 in the story there somewhere. But it's, it's sort of taking Hindu forms and creating a Muslim story. So if we look at a lot of the Hindu legends, there are these stories of these kings that are conquerors and they have connections to nature as part of their, their divine status. And the, that's what Shanam is, is, is basically, but sort of like a Muslim-ish version, meaning the character is a Muslim. Um, and so it became very common for rulers to want uh, a copy of that as a symbol of what their aspirations are for their own rule. Okay. And part of the publications of Shanam, you can, you can go online and there's, a, there's one a recent translation that has this... Um, um, they'll have really, really elaborate printings of this with, with all these miniatures and everything inside. Is that, is that the one that has like the, I'm probably confusing it, is that, uh, no, that's another one, actually I realized which one it is, it's like Haft al or something, it has like the story of Layla and Majnun, that's a different thing, right? No idea. Okay. Okay. Um. History of Mughal art. A historian of Mughal art notes at one geographical end of the Balkans of Bengal complex, the illustrated manuscripts that were a prized possession of the Mughals included eclectic esoteric works like the Khamsai Nizami. Uh, that might be it, because Nizami did a... Uh, maybe, I think I know. Uh, Diwani Hafiz, Saadis, Gulistan, and Bustan, Jami Yusuf, Zuleikha, Baharistan, and Tufat al-Ahrar, Diwans of Anwari... Amir Khosrow and Amir Shahi, uh, Akhlaqi Nas- Nasiri, an illustrated version of the lives of the saints. The Nahfat al-Uns, a historian of Ottoman art, notes that the uh, notes at the other geographical end, the Pasha was an obvious enthusiast of classical Persian literature, which was a tasty share with most members of the Ottoman court. His illustrated books were all Persian, Divan of Nabai, Laili Vamajnun, Divan of Amir Khosrow, Delwi, Nizami's Khamsa, Shahnama, Falnama, Divan of Jami, Kitab, Majlis al Ushab, uh, Gatherings of Lovers, Biographies of Sufi Saints, and the Kuliyat of Sabi. So, so what are we saying here? That at the two different ends of, of the Muslim populations, um, you had these illustrated books of the same books. So you had Layla Majnun. Uh, on one side, you had Leon Majnun on the other side. You had Saudi's books on one side, you had Saudi's books on the other side. And so what's also fascinating is that they even illustrated the same books. In other words, these figural illustrations were employed throughout the Balkans of Bengal complex precisely as visual expressions of the ideas and values related to canonical texts of narrative fiction, poetry, and history that were regarded as the highest registers of self-conceptualization and self-expression in these societies. I mean, to, to really like give us a way to understand this, what will probably happen is you'll have populations 300 years from now, 500 years from now, that will look back on Muslim production and see how many zillions of photographs we have 
including photographs of religious events, and then they'll raise exact same, the exact same question, right? And so um, we might say that, okay, at least we're not painting, but it's still images, and so uh, another population, let's say, you know, a version of this book 500 years from now, we'll say, you know, looking at the Muslims all across the world from the Americas all the way through, through Southeast Asia um, and everything in between, there was this huge production of photographs, right? And so part of this could just be that these were the types of art forms that were around and just everyone did them, you know? And they may have still focused on their prayers and stuff, and, but they still did all these other things, you know? Or it could be that these were the works of particular social classes, you know, the, the wealthy elite or power and such. Yeah, I was gonna ask a question about that. Could, could, we, all, could we say um, that, you know, like power needs, I feel like in some level it needs some sort of mystique or like myth to maintain itself. Yeah. And like having these sort of, you know, I, the fact that they're all, not only are they like simultaneously Islamic, but also pre-Islamic and, you know, like having that and like, you know, like associating with things like that adds to your sort of stability as a ruler because, you know, like it, I feel like anytime, especially with monarchs and stuff, I mean, I guess we do this as well in a secular state. You're, like, always trying to find some thread to the past that, like, validates your right to rule or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I saw, yeah, I think that is definitely the case uh, uh, of power all across history, all across different traditions, yeah. right? Uh, when you are turning your, your power, your authority, your rule into the le level of myth and legend and such. And so, therefore, uh, maybe they, you know they were, what's the word, um, uh, a little bit more, uh, they were easygoing on these rules. Mm. Then you think of some place like Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Right? I mean, they have paintings of the, of the rulers. Right? Yeah. In Saudi Arabia. <laughs> it's such right? a great, hilarious contradiction. Mm -hmm. it, like I was, I, like I, this also came to mind, I guess more of a, ex, this will be more, I guess, accepted within a Sunni religious bent. Mm -hmm. you, you learn about, like, for example, how the Ottomans eventually... They married into the family of the prophet to the point I think, like I've heard Sunni, uh, like I guess Sunni scholars say this, mm -hmm. where I think eventually like they were they were considered sated. So by like this normative idea of who rules, you know the Sunni Islamic you know conception, mm -hmm. right? They're okay because they're eventually you know they they married into the sated. So you know yeah, I mean that's uh, that's uh, the king of Jordan. Yeah, right? it's the Hashemite king of Jordan. So they're basically saying they're Banu Hashem. Um, yeah, that would be also part of the, the mythology. Okay, let's stop right here. What page is this? 53. 53, so this much said. Um, we might, uh, I'm going to skim through this, and we may continue reading through this, or we may jump forward to, to the next section. Um, all right, any last questions or thoughts? Yes? This might be too personal or just too long of a question to ask, but given your work with students and, like, trying to address each one and just help their connection to the divine. How do you balance raising your daughters with, like, the rules of Islam versus just, like, making sure that that doesn't, like, push them away from connecting with the divine? So, uh, I mean, for starters, they're teenagers, so they don't listen to anything anyway, right? <laughs> um, uh, uh, I'm much more hard hardcore about them making their prayers. Um, the things that are secondary, you know, I also treat as secondary. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, they've probably seen more movies than any of their peers have, right? That's all, all images. 
Um, <laughs> uh, and so... Well, it didn't say you couldn't watch the images. You just can't produce them. Oh, that's true, yeah. yeah you're t saying that to a guy with a film degree. So <laughs> so, so the, the basic... Uh, uh, I mean, that would probably be the easiest way to describe it. You know, I mean, I think some of the rebellion um, um, that, that people have against their parents may not be towards the imposition of religion upon them, but just, you know, the, the disconnect between the parent and the child. Uh, I don't know that my daughters are comfortable in talking to me. I mean, they still pretend like they don't know any bad words. And so whenever we go to a, a bookstore and I'll see a word, or if I can cover up a syllable and say, hey, what is this word? And they'll look like, yeah, I'm not going to say that. You know, <laughs> right? I'm like, you guys act like you don't know anything. So, so yeah, uh, ask me in a couple of years if, if the strategy worked or not. Okay. Maybe it failed miserably. Hopefully not, hopefully not. Inshallah. not. All right, any other questions or thoughts? You said, um organic mosques that imitate the, the style around them. I thought of those mosques like on Devon that are in a part of the basement. <laughs> no, no, I thought the of that. most artistic. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah I, I didn't mean uh, organic. No, like the one That's, went to a yeah, more like compost rather than organic. Yeah. There's actually, I, was, I had something I remember. I don't know if this was like Padre or somewhere in the Gulf. I forget where. But someone made a, a, a mosque or like a design of a mosque that's very sort of modernist, you know, like very sharp lines, very flat, uh, you know, uh, sort of like aesthetic. And they made it a masjid, you know what I'm saying? And like they're, they're, I think they were trying to negotiate with that idea of like, you know, normally masjids are seen as these very, you know, there's like a trope, you know, there has to be a minaret or a dome mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah, what's funny is and, those are all things we took. Yeah, yeah. So they were trying to go against that, and they made like a very, you know. And it, I was thinking to myself, it's also very funny because, like, Muslims tend to take these things as like religious and very sort of, you know, like it appeals to them when it, it at the source, it's not really from. I guess mm -hmm. you know, like you know, like people get mad at a masjid that doesn't have a minaret or whatever, mm -hmm. for example, or doesn't have a dome, and you're like, uh, you know. Or, like, I think I remember we had this conversation of, like, people venerate, like, the green dome of the Prophet mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And it's, like, I remember someone, a scholar, like, uh, made the point that that dome was, like, it was, like, white at first. Mm -hmm. Before it was even a dome, it was white, and then it was blue. Mm -hmm. And then it was changed to green by the Ottomans, like, 300 mm -hmm. years ago. You know, like, it, the colors changed. Yeah, the dome times. itself was added. Please. Yeah, so, like, but people make it, like, this, like, religious symbol, like, that's, like, whoa. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's on so many prayer rugs. Yeah, yeah, too many prayer rugs. Right. I never got there. There can't be too many prayer rugs. Okay. All right. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu la ilaha illa anta nasafiru kana tubi lake wa akhiru da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.